written a long time ago. In light of Sunday school, we can even say it was written. Moses didn't have you in mind, but God did. God's word for you today. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam... The prophetess 
The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, we come in Christ's name with the Spirit working within us, asking that you would give life and light to your word to us, that we might see and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you into a daydream. Invite you into a daydream that I think many pastors have. It's not the exact way I'm going to tell it here, but more or less the same kind of concept. Maybe it's at General Assembly, maybe a couple years, who knows when it comes to Charlotte and you decide to go visit. Maybe you decide to fly out to Dallas next year. Maybe, actually, better illustration, I guess, for you ladies, maybe you decide to go to Atlanta for the National Women's Conference. And they have to have it in the huge hotels down there because there's, what, like three or four or 5,000 women singing. It's glorious. It reminds us of heaven. And let's say in our little daydream, you're at either General Assembly, you're at the, the women's conference, wherever you are. And then at GA, you find out that the pastor who was supposed to lead worship called in sick. And just providentially, they're like, we need somebody to pray the prayer of intercession. It's you, Go. Ladies, you're at the women's conference and right there in front of all 4,000 women, it's like, Eden, just go, go pray, lead them in prayer. Now, if you've actually kind of emotionally processed the story and engaged the daydream, many of you would actually truthfully already be sweating. I know that for sure because the pastoral version of this is usually uh, they call on you to preach like that without great warning and it just panics you and you wake up freaked out or whatever. But it's interesting to think about for the prayer of intercession because the prayer of intercession is just simply an extended prayer. And for some of us, the idea of praying in front of a whole bunch of people is really exciting. And those are the ones you probably need to worry about. (laughs) Those are the ones who probably don't need praying in front of a whole bunch of people for their own health. But for a lot of us, it's like, oh, that sends me into a panic. I mean, I can't pray in public. I mean, for somebody to listen to me, thousands of people to listen, I don't know how to pray. And that's the answer right there. It's interesting how when it comes time to talk about prayer, the most common kind of phrase that you hear when people actually start being honest, it's not that they don't like it, though that may be a truth, is that they don't feel like they know how to. At which point I want to say, well, we teach you how to do it every week. That's part of why we have the prayer of intercession, the way that we do, where we pray through the Psalms year round. We, we have all of the different prayers of the service, but that's not actually what I'm referring to. We teach you how to pray every week because we sing them. 
You may not really think about it that way, but realistically, almost all the hymns that we sing fall in one of two categories. We either have hymns that are sung to each other, at which point we're trying to encourage one another to come and worship the Lord together. Come, let us praise God together. Come, Christians, join and sing. We have that concept. We often sing that in the place of our first hymn, encouraging us to sing. But the overwhelming majority of the songs that we sing fit the category I set you up for it of that one on the bottom on the very first page. God, be merciful to me. You may like that song. You may not. It's really hard to sing. And there's a reason because the content of it is demanding. It's difficult. It's gruesome because it's Psalm 51 set in metrical form. We're singing one of the great confessions of sin in Scripture where David is processing his sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband and committing conspiracy that the entire palace knew about and forcing servants to participate in all of his evil. And so it's hard. You may not have thought about it that way, but that's actually what the vast majority of these songs are, is they're sung prayers. It's the function of music in the service. And it's interesting, that's the function that is held in the vast majority of church history. In fact, actually, it's really only within America in the last 50 years that singing has been shifted from thinking as a, as a prayer or in thinking of it as instruction to one another and begin to think of it as an event, or as a feeling, or as an experience. We're going to see a little bit here in Exodus chapter 15 how God is instructing His people to pray in one of the, the great songs in Scripture. It's a great song. I mean, again, it's going to be in your head all day if you know it. It's already in my brain. I can't get it out just from having read it this time, morning so many times. You remember in the book so far, we've, we've seen the impossibly bad turn into the impossibly good. Slavery, murder, persecution turned into plagues, turned into freedom, into chapter 14 where God is leading his people out of, Israel, I mean, out of Egypt. And you remember from this that the Lord intentionally sends them the wrong way. Not the way that would actually get them out of Egypt. It sends them the way, he sends them the way that would get them further into Egypt. They go south into the area where there would be no way to get out. And in chapter 14, you have the great story of how the Lord sends a wind, his breath upon the sea, as Psalm 66 already explained, and the waters flee from God. I love how the, the Psalms portray that. It's God shows up in the waters like, nope, 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 I'm out, and it runs. And God does this miraculous thing. Again, remembering it, it took all night for the waters to open. 
And Israel goes through, and again, it's not the way you remember it in your head, most likely, where it's like all hundred of us are like, hey, let's go for a hike through the middle of the ocean. It's like all of Charlotte decided to go for a hike through the middle of the ocean. Not some little trail. Not some little narrow canyon covered by water. It's immense. The ocean has run away from God. Until God calls it back over the Egyptians and destroys his enemies. In chapter 15, we have the emotional response of God's people immediately following the great victory where the mightiest nation on earth has been destroyed. I love the the context of how this is explained. Chapter 14, look at verse 30. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This song is being sung in worship as the corpses of the Egyptians wash up at their feet. This is not being sung kind of in some ethereal, like, hey, I think God's probably saved me in some fashion. It's like, wow, that dude's dead. He drowned. Just a couple of minutes ago, way out in the middle of the sea, and it's been, he's been washed in. His body is beginning to turn the wrong color. It's amazing how quickly that happens. And we have what is uh, considered by many to be the first recorded piece, first written piece of scripture in the, in the Torah. The first thing Moses wrote down, it's likely he wrote uh, all of the other books later when he gets to a place where he can write uh, this, however, uh, scripted on the fly. It notes it from the very beginning. It clues us in so we think about it, but again, with our Western ears, we forget. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. What is it called when you offer words to God? It is called prayer. And there's three kind of primary things that we're going to look at through the passage. There's a lot of different ways you could look at this, a lot of different themes, and they're all very good and excellent. Uh, We're going to highlight three specific ones and the way that this is sung. Verses 1 through 3, the way it's carved out in the ESV, they're kind of bracketed off to their own. It's not the only way uh, to divide it, but we're going to look at those specifically. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider. He's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, this is poetry. It's why it's in this typeset in your English Bible. But this is using the fancy term and theology land. This is what's called theology proper. It is explanation about the character of God. It's interesting that as the corpses are washing up in front of them, the dead horses wash up in front of them. Again, think about the debris field. You know, when they look for planes today and the planes gone down, they look for the debris field. The debris field of Egypt is just all over the sea. And Moses begins by contemplating the very character of God. Look, he's done this thing. He's won the victory. It wasn't us, which was very obvious as it was the 
actual water running away and coming back that did it. But God is the one who is victorious, and then he begins to kind of build on that. God is strong. He is the God of my song. He's the God of my salvation. I'm going to praise Him. He's my Father's God. He's a man of war. That is a term that, ooh, you could spend a lifetime thinking about. That God is a mighty warrior. That fits our very tender social media understanding of God these days, doesn't it? We've already given his name earlier as explained as he's the Lord who who strikes. Now we have this. The man of war. The God who is the mighty warrior who goes to battle, who destroys his enemies. And it's not an even fight. It's certainly fair. But it's not even. He controls the sea controls the sky, controls frogs, boils, all kinds of other terrible things in his arsenal. But it's intriguing how the the beginning of the song is just, just kind of pontificating on who God is. It's thinking about just how marvelous he is. And I would suggest that out of Kind of all the ways to, think, to sing today, all of the ways to pray, all of the things to think about and pray about, I, I would suggest this is probably the area that American Christians perhaps struggle with the most. We've got the asking part down. I mean, as a kid, I was amazing at crafting a Christmas list. It did not take much effort for me to have 87 things that I wanted. As an adult, it's still surprisingly easy for me to come up with one. The problem is finding things that are in price range that's reasonable. (laughs) We excel at the asking part. In fact, actually, occasionally we can even excel at the Thanksgiving part because oftentimes it's just taking our askings and flipping them over. Take the coin and flip it to the other side. Some of us perhaps even excel at the confession aspect of prayer because we understand our sins. We particularly excel at that when we get caught doing something. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how conscious you are of how well you tell the truth right after mom and dad bust you for lying. (laughs) Suddenly you notice those exaggerations and those falsehoods a little bit more carefully. But perhaps the hardest is this aspect of song captured here, this aspect of the scriptures to just mull on, to think about, to stew on God's character himself. And you realize part of why I think this is unusually difficult for us is because the other three aspects of prayer that we just mentioned, this asking for things, giving thanks, giving for things, for confessing our sins, all three of those explicitly have us in it. I'm asking for things that I need or people that I love. I'm giving for thanks, thanksgiving for things that I feel or that are blessings to me or people that I love. I'm confessing sins that I've done. uh, It's easy because, honestly, I love to think about myself. 
One of my professors in seminary used to talk about uh, how to counsel, how to evangelize, how to share the gospel. And he said, look, the first thing you need to learn in going out and interacting with people and pastoring is how to get them talking. And the easiest way to get a person talking is simply to ask them about themselves because they are their favorite topic. (laughs) If you can get them talking about themselves, they'll talk forever. And in reality, I think that's so often quite the case for our prayers, isn't it? I mean, if, you, if we had a time of prayer corporately where we prayed for things that were needful in the church, and again, this is a good thing to pray for. Please don't hear this as is bad. We can pray for our needs forever and ever and ever, amen, because we can think of them forever and ever, amen, because in some sense I get a chance to think about myself, and that's a good and right and holy thing. Please don't hear that as wrong. But you want to watch Christians struggle in prayer, particularly American Christians struggle in prayer. Have us just try to think about how beautiful God is. To think about how lovely He is. To think about how great He is. To think about how low He has come to know us. To think about what He's accomplished in Jesus. To think about all of the great and grand things that, it, that make God God. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you praised God for His infinity? I mean, it's an essential aspect of his nature. <clears throat> to just ponder. And again, I'm going to be honest, a lot of us, we really struggle with this. And this is where, as a pastor, I would say, please learn your psalms. Go read your psalms and pray through the psalms. This is why we do this as part of our prayer of intercession, because the psalms are so good for helping us understand that. That God is our strong tower. He's the covenant God. He's the rock. He's our father. He's the most high. I just literally opened it to a random page in the Psalms. Because it's this character of God that then functions as the anchor for the, the next two parts that follow. And the next one is the biggie. Where they begin the process, and this is fantastic, they begin the process of remembering. And they begin the process of remembering as it's taking place. This is the most amazing thing for me. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the resident. No joke, it was like right there. Like, I mean like right there, the dude's dead right there. You're looking at his gray corpse turning grayer as it goes. Bobbing in the water as far as the eye can see. You know, I mean, you could see somebody that's maybe uh, really has a terrible attitude listening to Moses' song and like, really, Moses? Like, I didn't notice. <laughs> I, I mean, did we somehow manage to miss the giant walls of water? Did we somehow manage to miss walking through dry ground with water up on the sides? Did we somehow manage to miss the 10-story fire tornado that led us here? Did you, did you somehow not notice those things? No, you can't. You, everybody notices it. But it's intriguing how a key aspect of how God has designed his people to operate is with intentional institutional memory. 
Their song of praise immediately recounts, look, he destroyed Pharaoh and his chariots, verse 4. Look, verse 5, the floods covered them. Look, verse 6, you did this, God, you killed the enemies. Verse 7, yay, you destroyed them easily because they're puny. Not to us, but they're puny to you. Verse 8, you get this great non-Western statement here, right? At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. I love that. It's like he snorted like a bull in the waters again. Nope, 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 I'm out. I'm done. See you. I'll catch you later. The flood stood up in a heap. And this last one, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That is a cool phrase. Verse 9, putting words in Pharaoh's mind and mouth. Pharaoh was like, look, I'm going to go get them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to take them back. They're going to be enemies again. They're going to be our slaves again. We're going to make money off of them. And then God blew and they died. And again, you would think, did anyone not know these things? And think about this for a second. Out of all the Israelites that just have kind of gone through this, did any of them not know it? Yeah, actually some did. The little ones. You see, this is part of why God has institutional, intentional institutional memory built into his people and the way they are designed to worship and what we are commanded to do is it's not just about you. I mean, I hate to break that to you. Christianity is not just about me. It's not just about you. One of the reoccurring themes all throughout the scripture is we are commanded to pass it on to the next generation. I mean, think about the the, the pregnant mother. How many times do you think she told that child, you will never believe where you went? when you were in the womb. And the kid's like, I know, Mom. <laughs> like, no, seriously, I took you through the ocean. I know, Mom. This is the tenth time I've heard it. No, but seriously, God part of the one. I know, Mom. Right? Your ancient Israelite teenager. <laughs> I only say that because that's what I said, I know. But it's interesting how uh, part of what we're designed to do is this kind of institutional, this intentional institutional memory of how God works. To retell the story over and over and over again. And you think, well, I mean, okay, that was how Israelites worked. It's different today, right? They were ignorant way back then. actually read the book of Acts and see how they preached in the book of Acts. You remember how they preached in the book of Acts? You remember the sermons? They tell the story of Jesus and then say, oh yeah, by the, uh, by the way, all those people that killed him, that was you. You're the murderers. You probably should turn to him for forgiveness. They're retelling the story of the scriptures over and over and over again. They're telling the story of redemptive history, how God has worked from beginning to end. Put this simply in how we pray in this way is, one is we need to have as an aspect of our prayers, we need to constantly be recounting in prayer the story of King Jesus. 
You know, in, in the Old Testament, the, the Exodus for, you know, serves as the paradigm that they think about everything. That we were in serious, serious trouble and God brought us out. Which is kind of prepping all of God's people to think, hey, this motif, this, this way to think of, oh, we were in serious trouble, but God you know, brought us out, is prepping them for when Christ shows up. So that they're able to say, hey, look, you were slaves to Egypt. You're way worse than slave to sin. And God brought them out through plagues and through the sea and through all these miracles. And he brought you out of sin through an even greater one. That the second person of the Trinity would step inside time and space, step inside humanity and would die an unjust death on your behalf when you should be the one dying. To recount that in our prayers. To recount that. And again, particularly, I would say even more so, not just telling the big story of Jesus, that's absolutely important for our prayers, but also to remember our own story. To remember the specific ways that the plan of redemption has played out for you and for me. To give thanks for the the, the seemingly coincidental things, they're not coincidences, but the seemingly coincidental ways that God worked years and years prior that would bring you to the place that you're at. I mean, the weird things. Part of my walk with the Lord, my knowledge, God's saving grace, how He worked in my life involves an Amway chapel service in Charlotte when my family lived two hours away. That is really weird. That years later I would grow up in Charlotte and that would be part of what God used in my family's story of God's working. You may not realize that I actually trained you this way. I'm doing this already in the prayer, the prayer of intercession, praying for the land. Again, you realize the land, there's absolutely zero chance this church would be in Fort Mill if we did not own land already. Because we would not be able to afford to get into Fort Mill. It's insanely expensive. I mean, good land like this is like $300,000 an acre if you have like me land. We can't afford that. Yet God in his infinite mercy, years ago before this church even knew that it was going to be able to survive, he provided land for us part of the story of redemption in this church. It also hopefully should give a sense of nostalgia that God's working in our lives and working in ways that we didn't see and we didn't understand, but maybe now we do a little bit more. And to be able to praise him. Again, thinking through this, what, 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 portion of your prayer is devoted to just delighting in God's victory in your story. I mean, you realize like that's one of the key elements of New Testament itself. Again, I kind of set you up for it. I tricked you. Ephesians chapter 2. That's all Paul's doing is having them think through God's character in light of their story. Look, you were... Sons of disobedience, born in the course of this world under the prince of the power of the air, but God, being rich in mercy, sent Christ to bring you out of the land of darkness into 
being the children of light. And this is fun, too, because you get to think through how God specifically worked in your own life. Thinking through the various things that only you and he would know, maybe. Thinking through the just little quirks in the way that he's brought you to this place. And again, all of that is not simply to to drive us into a, a tailspin if your story is a really dark story. It's not to discourage you. It's not to get you preoccupied with yourself. Notice how what happens here. Verses 4 through 10, he walks them through the experience they literally just felt. They literally just lived it. All builds to get to a question in verse 11. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord that's able to destroy his enemies like this? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You realize your testimony, how the Lord has brought you from wherever you started to however you got here. Verse 11 is the application of that story. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? All of the false gods, these petty little gods, the gods of Egypt, they have these little gods for everything, which he's worked at defeating every step of the way. Who is like you, O Lord, that you could use such difficulties to do something amazing? If you got converted later in life, who is like the Lord who can use such scars? Some of you, you're converted later in life and you, you bear all kinds of baggage. Who is like the Lord that he can use such terrible things to bring you to the life to come? Maybe your story's like mine. I, I don't remember not knowing the Lord. As a kid, I was always embarrassed because my trying to tell a Christian testimony was like, yeah, I believed the Bible. The Lord was very kind and... <laughs> Now, as an older man, I'm able to reflect on how awesome in his glorious deeds is that. That I didn't have to walk all those paths. That I didn't have to spend those years searching for meaning in the ways of the world. That I didn't spend those years under the prince of the power of the air. And oh, who is like God Almighty that he would show mercy like that? Because I don't deserve it. Who is like the Lord doing wonders that he would place a child in a home like the one I grew up in? Who is like the Lord that he would give you the story that you have? Easy or hard? Painful or pleasurable? Filled with immense difficulty or having no idea what difficulty actually is? (laughs) Who is like God that he would do that? It's interesting, too, when you begin to think about it that way, it puts actually a different spin on the requests that you have, doesn't it? How you're able to think about the things that are needful. Because you begin to contemplate, look, who is like God? Well, I'm not. Because if anything I've proven over the years that God has given me, that I tend to be a bozo most of the time. And so it's going to give me a greater sense of humility when I ask. 
Who is like the Lord? Well, certainly not me, because I've chosen stupid things more times than I can count, and God never once has. And I'm limited by a lack of information constantly, and God never once has been. And I'm limited by a lack of wisdom constantly, and God never once has been. I'm limited by a lack of resources. Man, I wish I had bajillions of dollars. I would probably spend it terribly giving things that I should never do. God never once has been wasteful. It reshapes how we think. It's why this institutional memory, intentional institutional memory, is so key as part of our prayer life. Verses 13 through 16, he changes gears here, and this is, I think, perhaps the most interesting. This is the one that I think if you, ha- if you were there and you were listening to this song, you would have been tracking through verse 12. You get to verse 13 and you would have been a little bit like, what now? Moses, where, where did you go? Somewhere between stanzas two and three, I lost you. I followed in stanza one, I followed in stanza two, and I'm kind of gone, man. You have led your, sorry, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. I got that, God. Look, you, were, you brought your people, you've led in steadfast love. And in this case, that steadfast love looks like a giant burning tornado of fire. Not the most loving portrait I would have picked, but it certainly worked at the time. It conveyed his love excellently. You've guided them by your strength. Yeah, well, they understood that one. The peoples have heard they tremble. Now, that's interesting. Because have the peoples heard yet? Well, I mean, some of them have, but they're dead. And they heard the water as it crashed down on them. It was a short-lived hearing. I mean, the Egyptians heard, I guess, with the plagues and such, but they haven't fully heard about the Red Sea collapsing yet. Peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now, that's really interesting because where has Israel not been anywhere near for more than four centuries? The answer is Philistia. Verse 15, now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. They haven't been anywhere near Edom in more than four centuries. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. They haven't been anywhere near Moab in over four centuries. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They haven't been in Canaan for more than four centuries. Oh, but they will be. You see, this is actually, it's it's beautiful because it's being told in the past tense, but this is all the future fulfillment of the promises of God. In fact, actually, if you wanted to be really clever and get your Bible you know, atlas out, if where they crossed the Red Sea, you drew a direct line between the Red Sea and Jerusalem. Anybody want to take a guess as to what provinces would be in the way? How about Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan? All of the ones just mentioned. Terror and dread fall upon them. They, they will. Because of the greatness of God's arm, because they, are, they will be still as a stone. You'll bring your people in. You'll plant them on your holy, holy mountain in Jerusalem. He hasn't done that yet. They don't live there yet. The Lord will reign forever. You see, it's interesting because what they're doing now, what Moses is doing in this song is he's contemplating not just the past story of redemption, but the future story of redemption. This is sure it will happen. 
which for us is another wonderful thing to contemplate, that I know what happens to me. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to die, but I know I will. I also know I'm not going to stay dead. I mean, my body might stay dead for, I don't know how long, maybe 10,000 years. I don't know until how long Jesus comes back. My soul won't stay dead at all. It goes to glory immediately. Where it's with God, waiting with God, eagerly awaiting the resurrection, waiting for my body to be remade. In fact, all the saints who have gone to glory, Moses himself is doing that right now. He's in heaven waiting with the Father, waiting for his body to be resurrected, already knowing that the Lord will reign forever and ever, but seeing how that will change even for him in the future. Contemplating the future promises of God. You see, really, in fact, actually, if we're going to be crass and boil it down to its most basic level, what this song is, is contemplating who God is, contemplating what God's done in the past, and contemplating what God will do in the future. And it's really interesting that if we're going to be honest, there are three things that we probably don't do that often in our prayers, and it's contemplating who God is, contemplating what God has done in the past, and contemplating what God will do in the future. It's interesting, kind of taking it back to the very beginning. Called upon to pray in public. Again, that idea makes some of our hands quite sweaty. Some of us, it makes our shirts maybe even quite a bit sweaty. But as we read the scriptures, it helps us to know who God is. And we can talk about that. Maybe not everybody with the same amount of precision. Maybe not everybody with the same amount of depth. But we can talk about God. I've heard almost all of you do it. And you can talk about God's story in your life. Well, I guess most of us can't. Maybe there might actually, in being up front, there might actually some of us be some of us in here that don't have that story. And by that I mean they don't know God, so they don't know what story to tell. And if that's you, please come talk to me. It doesn't have to stay that way. Again, we don't want your story to end the way that Egypt does, very abruptly and badly. Come talk to me. But if you know the Lord, you know your story, and you can think about that. It's not hard to go back and think about uh, that person, that random stranger that came up to you, one of my friends. Uh, his conversion, he was in the middle of, well, he was very out of his mind on illegal substances and had one of the uh, people who was also out of their mind on illegal substances walk up to him, grab him by the, the cuffs of his shirt, you know, kind of pull right up face to face and say, you'll never be happy till you know God. And suddenly he remembered all of the truths of his childhood church and the fear of the Lord struck him. He packed that night, left everything else he owned, drove halfway across the country so he could go back to the church. He's actually a pastor of now. Yeah. To marvel at the things that God does. And can you think about what he's going to do in the future? Well, yeah, you can do that too. You can think about what death looks like. You can think about how he'll take care of you. That's not that hard. We can do that. And the reason being is because God is a marvelous God. Who is like the Lord? Among the gods, who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And I do think it's interesting that Miriam, her her service in Israel is ambivalent at best. It's not always good. She's actually going to be a little bit problematic, be problematic a little bit later. 
But it is interesting how the women's ministry immediately kind of takes this up and begins to kind of embrace the story. Let's take the ministry. Let's push it on further. Let's tell the children. Let's be excited. God is at work in his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are worth the effort of learning how to pray. We thank you that you are worth learning to talk to. Oh, God, who is like you? No one else. I mean, first, you're triune. One God, three persons. I don't fully wrap my mind around that. I can't. I'm finite. You're infinite. You're perfect. I don't fully understand exactly how that works because I'm not. You're sinless. We're sinful. You're perfectly kind. We get grumpy. You're perfectly patient. (laughs) That's certainly not us. You're perfect in every way. We ask that you would, in your great mercy, teach us how to pray. And Lord, encourage us. Where we are weak, where our interest wanes, would you please teach us, stir our hearts, that we would be prepared for the life to come where we may see you and know you and love you in greater way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.